What does healing mean to you? What healing means is that the person is better at recognizing symptoms in the problem, and they are better at using their own and other resources for dealing with the problem when it's there. Voices, the mental health podcast, raising unanswered questions, sharing unanswered prayers. We are faith-based, peer-led, story-driven, and stigma-breaking. I am Tony Roberts. I am Eric Riddle. And we are Revealing Voices. Tony Roberts, good evening. Good evening, Eric. It's a pleasant evening to be alive. Um, yes, yes. Especially after taking the trip that I just did. My bride and I finally found a time to go away for our honeymoon, even though we're coming up on our first year anniversary. And yeah. we went to, we flew to San Antonio and had a marvelous week mm-hmm. uh, doing various things, river walk. Got to see these tremendous restaurants, um, ate some good brisket. Oh, good. Uh, I like brisket. And, uh, How long is the walk? I hear about the river walk all the time. I've never been on Oh, that. we didn't go on all of it. That day, we walked six miles. Went to a museum, an art museum that was really top drawer. Nice. Went on a wine tour, cool. a Taste of Fe- Fredericksburg. Okay. Uh, so anyway, we decided, my wife turns to me and says, you want to drive home? <laughs> so it's like, we just cashed in. Well, we got credit for our airplane ticket, but we had oh, to yeah. pay okay. a penalty for the car returning it in a, yeah. a different location. But we just, we took off at 5.30 a.m. Uh, in a Mustang? In <laughs> Mustang Sally or... Yeah. <laughs> Mustang Susan? Mustang Susan, yes. So we just took off and drove until 3.30 a.m. the next, you know, which we were on the road for like 22 hours. 22 hours. We saw a lot of the country. So our next trip, we're taking Eric's wife, Jen. (laughs) Jen and Tony got into a very lengthy bullet point <laughs> discussion on Facebook of uh, air travel versus car travel. Yeah. I can swing either way. I, yeah. I do like the old Kerouac road trip oh, every yeah. now and then. Well, I would say if you're manic, it's just top door. No, it's you the just, way to go. Yeah. No doubt. We were talking earlier leading up to this trip. I had a month of Probably the worst depression I've been in in 10 years. Yes, you are. And you stopped by one night, Eric, and saw me in this. And even up till Thursday night, we basically had decided not to go on our honeymoon because uh, it, I was just not able to function. Right. So, you know, I prayed about it. I thought about it. Went to bed and I thought, well, my one strategy is sometimes I wake up early. I intentionally get myself up early and mm-hmm. stay up. Right. So 1.45, I wake up, and I'm like, I feel better. You know, it's like the lights came on. At 1.45 a.m. 1.45 a.m., the lights waking up. came on. Yeah. The dog licked your face. Dog? <laughs> licked my face. Oh, yeah, Briley. Briley's always there for me. Yeah. She, 
she laid around with me when I was depressed. And when I got better, she was like, okay, time to play. <laughs> okay, I've been, I've, I dealt with you for, for four weeks. You're going to You and Briley are pretty awesome. We're connected, yeah. yeah. Susan and I have talked a lot about learning about the illness in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you and Jen have as well. It'd be interesting to maybe do an episode with our wives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. I know Susan went to Jen during that that Thursday when I had just come around. Yeah. And uh, she was feeling a lot of stress herself. She went and talked to my sister. And, right. Yeah. It's, it's a heavy load if uh, those of you who are loved ones of someone with a mental illness. So tell me, Eric, how you are going. How's the... Uh, How's the project with the trees canopies? Yeah. So earlier in the year, I um, responded to the needs of my neighborhood. Yes. When three very large trees were all cut down. Yeah. And so I've been talking to the neighbors, and we're looking to do a a tree planting project in the Mm -hmm. spring. So I've been working with the city a bit, tree selection, where you plant the trees, how you know where to plant them financing, whatever. So I've been invited to this group called the Columbus Tree Canopy Partners, and it's a a citywide initiative for 2020 to do a tree assessment in town and do a five-plan tree management strategy, tree ordinance, put together a, a tree board, and hopefully be able to have the city hire an arborist to really fulfill yeah. the plan, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm really supportive of it. Mm-hmm. I'm really thankful to be on on this committee. And so I floated the idea by the committee of reaching out to churches, mm-hmm. you know, because a lot of the time, I mean, think about any, like, fundraiser you go to, you see a bazillion businesses mm-hmm. with their names on the back of the T-shirt who have sponsored, but mm-hmm. you don't often have multiple mm-hmm. churches sponsoring something. Not often. And I was like, well, what if we like intentionally reached out to churches to raise money for purchasing trees. And they're like, that's a great idea. And so I've talked to four churches so Mm -hmm. far, and they're all very receptive to it. Um, Next April is Earth Day, 50 Mm. year anniversary of Earth Day. And April Fool's. No, (laughs) the the 50 year anniversary of Earth Day and Arbor Day Ah, fall in the same week. Perfect. So we're talking about having like a full week of tree planting around the city. Mm-hmm. It's pretty exciting. That is exciting. Yeah. So for me, I mean, it's kind of like a fun challenge mm-hmm. to just talk to people and yeah. see if they'll contribute. And, you know, with me not being paid to do it, I think it also mm-hmm. actually in some ways encourages people more. Because yeah. it's like, what, what what's in it for him? You exactly. Know, well, I just want no, to unify the city. I think you will be unifying both people and organizations and churches mm-hmm. in in ways that you wouldn't be able to if you had it as a as a job or you had. Yeah, a, I don't know if Mark Tyke will be listening to this, but <laughs> if he is, Mark, I'm coming after coming you. after you. <laughs> That's right. Well, big came... things from the Lutherans. <laughs> So now we have Thanksgiving. So what are your Thanksgiving plans? We're going to do a Thanksgiving meal on Friday, after, the day after, mm. with my brother's in-laws. The day of, we're going to be pretty chill. We're actually doing yoga on Thanksgiving. Okay. Yeah. Thanksgiving yoga. Will this be goat yoga or turkey yoga? I don't know. You know, Might be th- kind of fun. Is, 
I wonder if there's a turkey position. There probably ought know? to be fun. It would be fun to have a turkey yoga, like do yoga with turkeys who, and and then set them free. For the, like the president pardons the right. you know Joe Turkey for Thanksgiving. You know, and I'm thinking you know yoga. You have yoga with goats. You don't know that. I I'm not really that familiar with yoga well, with goats. Yeah, there are people. You know who who do yoga with goats doing in the room. Goats just hanging out. Well, they're all over their bodies. You know, <laughs> they do moves with the goats and stuff. It's That's really so it's weird. supposed to be really good for your mental health. <laughs> I've done hot yoga. Hot. Hot yoga. So like in a sauna. Pretty much. Yeah. It was terrible. Ugh. I've done a lot of yoga in my day, uh-huh. but I did hot yoga one time, and I said Not never again. again. Not like again. this isn't really yoga, and like in yoga, you, you're using your hands, you're like having yeah. to use yeah. the mat a lot, and when you're hot, you're sweating, and like I can't even like plant my hands, and I don't want to feel fun. this way. Not and... fun. So anyway, our guest today, <laughs> following up on the goat yoga, uh, our guest today is actually my therapist. Yes. Brian Ross, who uh, I've been with, the, other than the time I was in New York, we've been together four to five years. Would you uh, say he's the GOAT in terms of the <laughs> greatest of all time therapist for you? Uh, yes, actually, Brian is the GOAT of therapy. Why don't we just leave it there? You're about to hear the GOAT. <laughs> Let's go. Eric, we have here in studio E today. Yes. Perhaps my favorite therapist in the journey of I've been off and on in therapy for the better and worst part of the last <laughs> thirty some years, maybe more. We have with us my current counselor therapist. Which do you prefer, Brian? Counselor or therapist? I prefer therapist. Therapist. And Brian Ross is here with us, so welcome. Brian. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How long has Brian been your therapist? Well, Brian, I was with Brian for a couple, three years before I went back to New York. We started either in 13 or 14. So it's been at um, least five years. Yeah. Yeah. Five, five years. Yeah. It's going well. How did you all find each other? When you find a psychiatrist after you move, be ready to wait. <laughs> and I was living in Indy and basically went through a list that my insurance company provided and took me four months to find a psychiatrist. I wanted to get that in place before I saw therapy, given that I was on psychotropics. And I had someone that has left the practice where you serve once I was established there uh, asked about uh, a therapy, therapist in the practice because I think uh, it's often good to have uh, both therapy and psychiatry in the same practice. Brian and I hit it off, and it was good. good. So, Brian, we thank you for coming in, and we're just going to ask you a few questions related to your vocation and also your uh, faith and how the two overlap. 
Sure. First of all, what drew you into your vocation of therapy? That is a good question. I, I tell a little story because a lot of people will ask that early on when I've met them, that in high school, I was that go-to person for peers in terms of having a problem with a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a family, a situation. There was a song around that time by James Taylor called Handyman. And if you listen to the lyrics, that was kind of me. I was that go-to person. So I go to college, I get out of college, I get a degree in human relations and sociology, I become a caseworker for local child protection services. And it's not the easiest job, it's not the funnest job, but it was interesting and I liked what I did. But I fairly quickly found out that when you're the caseworker, you're basically the monitor and collector of information. You're not the doer of services. I wanted to be the doer of services for people that I had on my caseload or people with those kinds of problems. I find out you have to go to graduate school. So I enroll in graduate school, get a master's degree in social work, clinical. Uh, the other option was administrative, but I always wanted to work with people. Graduated in 1985 and I've been doing counseling as a therapist ever since. In what way, uh, and you can share a little of your faith journey as much as you like, but in what way has your faith been integrated into your profession? Well, most of the, of the time when I integrate it, I make the offer and I usually wait for the client to make the request to include that. Occasionally, I'll meet someone who will tell me up front, I'm an atheist or I don't have any beliefs. We will cover things like supports in a person's life and a question will be, are you affiliated with a church? Do you have a faith practice? And I'll get a spectrum of answers to none, to I'm a spiritual person, to I go occasionally to a church, to being very involved. And I will explain to people that it is a topic that I'm comfortable with, but I will do that only if you, as the client, initiate using that as part of our discussion points. Mm -hmm. If a person at any point in the spectrum does not want to do that, I work in a public agency, publicly funded agency, and so we're not going to use that as a specific point for any pay, any client that does not want to do so. Has your level of comfort with including faith as part of the discussion been a part of it since the beginning, or is that something you've kind of grown into in your practice? Mostly grown into it. When I was first doing therapy with people, first in a program, and then since then in public agencies, my faith journey, I've grown stronger in faith, learned more, and have more comfort uh, in terms of talking about that topic. Part of the issue, I think, is when I'm younger, when I was younger, you know, people would ask questions, and as a younger person, it's like, well, I don't have the answer to that. And I'm not saying I have answers now, but I think I have more experience to help with an answer. One of the things that I did early on in my career was work with families who had children before I had children. People would ask me that question. Do you have any kids? No. Well, then how can you help me deal with my kids and what's upsetting about my family life if you've not been in it? And I would use kind of a, an analogy that would be, well, you don't have to be an alcoholic to help an alcoholic. You don't have to have jumped off a bridge to know that that's dangerous. So 
the process we're going to use here is just talking and getting to know you and helping you face problems and issues better. And I don't have to have been through that. Where faith comes into that, again, is more what the comfort level is of the client, what they want to do to use that. And again, every now and then checking that out. You've used a line with me that I've uh, used with others quite often, and that is uh, there's a difference between being a Christian therapist and a therapist who is a Christian. And I'd like to unpack that a little bit. Okay. I am a Christian, and I am a therapist, and there are a lot of things that don't overlap with the public service agency and being a person of faith. One of the things that I like to tell people is I'm actually a pretty rare grouping in in and of itself. I'm male, Christian, sports-loving, no facial hair, therapist, and that is pretty rare in all of my years of experience to find all those in one particular person. The way I explain it is that when you go to see a Christian therapist or a person who is a Christian counselor, from the get-go, the reason a client would seek out that kind of therapist is knowing that that person has a basis in theology or a basis in their faith as a strong part of what they're going to use to work with them in therapy. Since I work in a public agency and have all of my career, I don't make that assumption because people don't come in with that assumption. In fact, the vast majority of people don't come in with that assumption or that desire to have that be a part of their therapy process. So I will utilize that because of my own experience. But if a person doesn't want that, I'm not going to throw that at them at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I've had people right up front say, I don't want anything to do with that stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'll ask me. I don't think I've had a lot of people who have asked me, I've told them I'm a Christian, and then they say, well, then I don't want to see you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it has happened a very small number of times. Mm-hmm. Somebody would say, well, I don't think you can understand mm-hmm. you know, if that's part of who you are. That's the client's choice. When we were preparing for me to move to New York, uh, I was trying to uh, strategize how... I would interview therapists and, and discover who, who would be a good fit. And faith was important to me because I had had therapists in the past who just cringed when I would talk faith language. You helped me understand a process or a good process to basically interview your therapist to make sure they with your faith or with other issues can be a good fit. And what would you say to someone who, whose faith is, you know, has strong faith convictions in terms of finding a therapist who could work with that? Well, I think each person as they make the decision, and as I've done this more and more, I find how courageous it is for a person to admit, I need help in this way. And this is a service that I want to get. I need therapy. I want to talk to a therapist. And I've had the experience a few times, but not nearly enough times, where the person would interview me at our first meeting, typically call an intake. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, would, I would recommend that to anyone, especially if it's the kind of random way in all the agencies I've worked with that you're typically assigned. Most of the time, not your particular point, since you were already engaged, 
Most of the time you call up the access center, the person takes the call, the information, a little bit about where you live and says, we're gonna schedule you with this person. For other reasons other than faith, there can be not a good fit. You know, if a woman's coming in because she's been raped, Brian may not be the best person for her. If a guy is coming in because he has a substance abuse problem, Brian is not the best fit for him because I don't have that experience and expertise to help somebody with that particular problem. So asking those questions and being comfortable with here, what we're talking about, two key questions. What is your basic philosophy? How do you provide therapy? And I don't know if you remember, but I would have given you what I call the speech. Yep. Which I is remember. the explanation it's been a of while. that. And that's rather generic. And then if the, the speech, the speech, yeah, the speech with the first session we had was, was basically me outlining um, what I was looking for. Right. Yes. And then the second part was Brian starting with, okay, this is who I am. This is what I do. Is that right? Pretty much. Uh, I call the speech basically uh, therapy 107 because People will come in with misconceptions about therapy and therapists, and I will usually blame that on Dr. Phil mm. and uh, the TV show Frasier that <laughs> represents a common misconception that people are going to come in, the therapist is going to interview them, and the therapist is going to tell them, here's kind of like diagnosing a problem with your car. Here's your problem. Here's what you need to do to fix it. I don't take that approach. Mm -hmm. And I would say only about seven, eight percent of the time at the end of the speech do I get somebody who says, nope, you're not for me. Now, I can be not for them for other reasons, but usually not because of the speech. So I give that explanation and then through both of those, the meeting, the explanation, and then them interviewing me, which I think is a good thing for a person to do, it's okay to ask questions. What are your faith beliefs? Do, do you belong to a church? Do you belong to a typical type of church? Mm -hmm. Because when somebody does say to me they are involved in the faith, I will ask them. Because without being stereotypically assigned, if a person comes in who's apostolic versus a person who comes in who's Catholic versus a person who comes in who's Jewish versus a person who comes in who's Jehovah's Witness, eh, there's a little bit of a different approach that you might take in some areas. So knowing that is helpful, but then the person's in charge of the therapy, the person's in charge of the services they're seeking, so what they want out of it is key. And asking questions about the faith of the person they're going to be talking and sharing with is very appropriate, and I would encourage people to do it. I want to go back, if we could, to what we talked about earlier. You mentioned that you started in social work that had more monitoring involved. Correct. You got your degree. And then what are some of the, I mean, you've had a, a track record of positions since then. What are some of the highlights of your career since then? Okay. Well, when I first got out of graduate school, I was hired to work a funded program based in a local community mental health center that was specifically for treating victims of sexual abuse. And the program itself included treating all of the people in the family, not only the victim of the sexual abuse. And then a segment of the treatment program was also for treating the offender 
of the sexual abuse. One of the aspects of that particular program was there were a number of families who, upon the victim reporting being abused, the family wanted to stay together. How do we do that safely? And again, an oversimplification, but one of the basic premises we used is if the public believes, and I think to a large degree rightly, that there is concern that a person who has molested a child will molest again. And then if the next premise is they're not going to jail for the rest of their life, how do we provide good treatment to reduce the risk of them molesting again? And then I became the director of the sex offender treatment program in that overall program and did that for 10 years. The program closed due to lesson funding and financial issues. So since then, I have worked in two other community mental health centers. And then where I'm at now is a publicly funded nonprofit. It's called Behavioral Health Clinic as part of a large hospital system. Mm-hmm. A little bit of a story. I never liked the shift from mental health title to behavioral health. We've talked a little bit about that. Yeah. What it's based on is the first mental health center I worked in after getting out of that program, that was in the late 90s. And the auditing and the oversight because of the federal and the state funding was that you had to have measurable goals. And there's nothing wrong with that. But they got very convoluted. There were times in that clinic where we had to write goals that went something like this. Let's say the client is Bob. Bob will report that on at least five days out of seven, for at least three weeks out of four, for at least three consecutive months, his anxiety level rates no higher than a five on a scale of one to (laughs) ten. Because mental health is so nefarious that... We can't, we don't know what that is. It's different from person to person, client to client, therapist to therapist, clinic to clinic. We have to have behavioral goals to Mm -hmm. measure. And there's nothing wrong with wanting behavioral goals. But I believe largely because of that kind of approach, mental health became behavioral health because we're measuring progress based upon the person's behavior. Now, there is some benefit to that. You know, are they sleeping better? Are they less anxious? Do they feel better in terms of their mood most of the time, et cetera? Mm-hmm. But it's all still very subjective. It's not as concrete as what they're looking for in terms mm-hmm. of behavioral. So I wish it was still called mental health, but it's now called behavioral health, mm-hmm. but it's the same thing. It's the same service. You still get your paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Just has a different title. So, a little aside, my wife, Jen, has a master's in behavioral psychology. Okay. And has spent a lot of her career working with children with autism. Ah, yes. Okay. So, can you tease that out a bit between how that particular focus with that particular population of client makes sense to be behavioral? Yes, because of the nature of the disorder that is called autism, now called autism spectrum, Mm -hmm. and including a lot of different things as opposed to you're autistic or you have Asperger's, which I believed in as a separate type of Mm -hmm. uh, until the new revision. Uh, Because of the nature of the disorder of autism and the impairments that the client experiences, the progress that that client makes 
is all based upon managing their behavior, their social interactions with other people. They're dealing with uh, stress and distress in those social interactions. And to what degree are they just upset, bothered, miffed, throwing a tantrum? So it's all based upon behavioral improvement for a person who has that disorder. And that makes sense to me because that's what a person with autism needs help with. There's a huge spectrum in the level of impairment for people with autism. And it takes a specially trained and a dedicated person to work with a person who has autism and the family of that person if it's a child. Mm -hmm. And then the risks and problems can get greater when they enter adolescence and then young adulthood. Mm -hmm. So for that particular area, an overarching behavioral approach makes sense. For the person who's dealing with generalized anxiety disorder or, say, anywhere from moderate to mild level of major depression, I'm not sure the behavioral measure is the key, although we do have behavioral aspects we're asking about. How much are you sleeping? Mm -hmm. Uh, How much are you getting done? Are you going to work every day? Mm -hmm. Are you getting work done? Those kinds of things. Are you Mm -hmm. getting home chores done? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're trying to measure it behaviorally, but the real issue is more of mental, emotional functioning. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes because of uh, insurance or disability, in my case, it, it can get pretty ridiculous. <laughs> like some of the forms I'm required to fill out are like, you know, what, what how did he dress today? Or Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, it's, yeah, I mean, to try to measure behaviorally, especially when you have a serious mental illness like I do, bipolar, you know, I could go, I mean, we see each other once every six weeks, once every or so. And uh, between those two visits, I will have covered the map. And I'm sure... You know, Absolutely. Not only uh, I would be confident that that's true of pretty much all your clients. Well, my belief has been that <clears throat> part of that is due to the overlap and sometimes too much overlap of what's called the medical model, mm. the disease model mm. of healing people, and mental health. Mm. Mental mm. health has the largest variety of subjectivity in it mm-hmm. of all the, quote, medical services. And you fill out these forms And it's almost like there's a two-page form, and the top of the form is, what's the illness? And it's for somebody who was in a motor vehicle accident Mm -hmm. four weeks ago. And then they think, well, okay, this is a person who had a manic episode of bipolar. And then all the other questions are the same. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's hard when somebody comes in, whether it's depression or bipolar disorder, when you only see a snapshot Mm -hmm. of who they are and how they are that day, how they're dressed, what their voice tone is, versus what they tell you about what the last two, three weeks has been like in terms of Mm -hmm. interacting with people in the family, people in the neighborhood, if they're working. Mm -hmm. And a form like that rarely captures the complete total of who that person is and how they're doing as opposed to a snapshot. Yeah, I can remember one time a, I can't remember what kind of case it was on, but an attorney had a picture of their client who was smiling and said, is this a happy person who had been diagnosed with depression? And it's like, a person with depression can be in a picture smiling, 
And that doesn't mean they don't have depression or far worse things. I I have seen uh, people in psych units who undergoing ECT who literally went between laughing hysterically to crying inconsolably within two minutes. Yes. You know? So if you snapped the picture when they were laughing, it's like, you know, what are you going to do? I want to pick up on your, your two models of medical and mental. So this is something you've seen in your career kind of cycle around, right? Or... Correct. Do you see this sort of cycling, or is this a trajectory that you see going in one direction? It's going in one direction, and it's very clearly going into the medical model direction. And again, this is my personal belief based on my professional experience. But mental health is primarily guided by doctors and covered by insurance. Mm-hmm. And it's almost, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but it's almost like, well, if three people go to see the same doctor and have the flu, they're going to get basically the same treatment. If three people who are depressed are going to go see three different therapists, they're going to get the same basic treatment, but very different. What I tell people is that if you're going to mental health treatment for depression and your interview is being observed and they are other providers, by the time you get to the fourth question in an interview, everybody observing would have had a different fourth question. Now, again, they're trying to do the same basic service, help this person deal with their depression. But the path they take would be a lot more circuitous compared to each other than it would be in terms of the medical model. Another thing about the medical model is, for the most part, they like to use the words fix and cure. I tell people we will not use those words. There's no way to describe that. And if you have that expectation, I can't help you Mm -hmm. because those are not realistic expectations of this service. And so I see it going towards that model that they want to have in the medical model, it's cause and effect. So if this person has schizophrenia, we've got to find the brain-based reason for that cause. And they use the deductive reasoning to then get to inductive treatments so that everybody who has schizophrenia will be treated with this method and this drug with, you know, with some variations. I mean, there's different drugs. And that's the way I see them driving that because they can't quantify, they can't measure the subjective difference and the subjective experience people have in their day-to-day life. Question I have, the medical model I sometimes worry about is all about treating like negative symptoms. Yes. And it's not as much of a strengths-based approach. Correct. I tend to think a strengths-based approach is in many ways more helpful, if not just as helpful as just trying to treat the, the negative symptoms. Absolutely. In graduate school and ever since, when you get training and go to school for this, you make sure you include what are the strengths this person has? What are the assets and resources this person can use day-to-day, week-to-week, between sessions? Mm-hmm. When you go, again, to the doctor for flu, I mean, occasionally they'll have some concern, you know, if somebody's homeless or something like that, which can be a serious problem. I'm not trying to minimize that as a problem. But if somebody needs to get a flu shot, if somebody has pneumonia, you may ask about, do you have somebody who's going to help take care of you? But that's pretty much it. The strengths that a person has is a much bigger part of mental health treatment 
I believe, than it is about the other kinds of medical model treatments. But because mental health is a medical service covered by insurance, they try to fit that model onto the services we do. And it may not be exactly square peg and round hole, but it's pretty close to that. What does healing mean to you? What healing means to me is, and I explain this in the speech, and I explain this through the process. What healing means is not that the problem goes away. What healing means is that the person is better at recognizing symptoms in the problem, and they are better at using their own and other resources for dealing with the problem when it's there. Because a person with depression will have mood swings and do a lot better on some days. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had people call and say, you know what? I'm doing pretty well for the last couple of weeks. I really don't need to come see you. So, well, I would like to see you and hear what that's about too. But if you don't need to come in, then don't come in. And then they can schedule and come in at another time when they're not doing as well. I explained to people in the speech that I mentioned before that the goal of therapy is to fire Brian is to get to the point where you don't need to come see me as often or at all for an extended period of time or if ever again. And that basically means you've gotten to the point that while the problem is still there, you see it, you handle it, you face it more effectively on your own or with the resources you have, whether that be friends, family, medication, whatever, and you can work through that. I explained to a lot of people particularly people who have bipolar disorder, that episodes are a lot like a hurricane or a tornado We're in Indiana. Mm. What can you do about a tornado? Well, you listen to the news reports. They'll give you a, a, a watch or a warning. And sometimes when it is the more severe of the levels, you take precautions, you uh, go to the basement, or you cover up the windows, and you do everything. And sometimes a tornado hits your area, and sometimes it doesn't. And tornadoes are weird in that, you know, they can destroy a house here and two blocks over. There's no problems. Can you prevent a tornado? No. What do you do with a tornado? You prepare for it. And after it's gone, you clean up the mess. And so we don't talk about fix or cure. We talk about being better at facing the tornado mm -hmm. and then better at cleaning up the mess when you're on your better days versus when you're on your not as good days. And that's what healing is. Uh, a, a little phrase that I've used with people is that peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is knowing what to do when there's conflict. Mm. And that's what I would describe as healing. Yeah. Do you have any examples from your practice of remarkable healing stories that you've seen in, in your clients? Well, that's a really good question. I hadn't spent any time thinking mm -hmm. about that. I've seen a lot of people at various levels of trauma. And when somebody can reach the point of what they tell, what we tell them, kind of a parallel to what I just shared with you, in dealing with somebody with trauma, again, it's not a fix. It's not a cure. Because some people with trauma will not want to get treatment because of the premise, which is true. Well, it won't change what happened. You're exactly right. But if somebody dealing with trauma or even another type of mental health impairment, if they can get to a point where it's less intrusive in terms of how often they think about it, it's less impairing when they do think about it, 
So when frequency is less and intensity is less, that is very good examples of people doing really good work. Mm -hmm. And I've met a number of people who have been able to accomplish that. Something I was thinking about is, and this is kind of a rough term, but faith therapy. If, if you're just going into these settings, you know, wanting to have the Christian counselor and there's all these metrics of like, how often have you prayed? How many times have you read the Bible? How many times have you gone to Correct. church? And if this like Christian counselor is like just measuring these things, and it's like, well, you're checking off all the boxes, you must be healed or something. Like that's mm -hmm. not an effective form of treatment. I would not think so. But again, part of that is based upon what the client walks through the door with. In the churches I've been in, most of the pastors have done some level of counseling with parishioners about various issues. In the speech that I mentioned a little ago, one of the things, and I did explain this to Tony, in my approach, I will not give you advice, which again is a misconception about a lot of therapy. And advice is defined as I won't tell you what you should say, should think, should feel, should do. Almost 180 degrees opposite of that is the person walking through the door of the Christian counselor or their pastor about this problem, this situation, and the pastor is going to give them advice, mm -hmm. either on the spiritual realm of it or what to do about it. And I'm not saying that's wrong if that's what the person wants. Mm -hmm. That's not my approach, and mm -hmm. I won't take that approach. Yeah, and I don't mean to minimize the role. Sure, faith right. right. And I think the definition of the Christian counselor will do exactly what you just described mm -hmm. is they'll say, you know, what are your beliefs? You know, what book of the Bible are you reading? Or what searches have you had? Or they'll give, you know, here's a, a, a verse from Proverbs or from Psalms that might help you and comfort you. Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with giving, giving this, particularly right. yeah. when the person walks in the door wanting that. One of the areas that I did want to mention, that if we can spend a little time on where this overlap, really is the issue of forgiveness. Mm. Whether it's a traumatic event or if it's the death of someone in the grief process, something that's happened to somebody, something that didn't happen, a lot of people will be seeking help for abuse, trauma, that kind of thing. And a lot of times they'll start with the premise of, I will never forgive them. And sometimes that's an opening to a little bit of, of faith questions about where they're at or whatever. And I have a couple of approaches. One is based in faith. One just leaves the initial part out of it. And essentially jumping ahead, working backwards, it, on the issue of forgiveness, what I'm trying to get the person to see is that forgiveness does not come from somebody contacting you, apologizing for what they did, recognize the impact that it had on you, and all those kinds of things that people typically want or expect in order for them to forgive someone. And that's the wrong approach, at least in my uh, belief, in my premise, because forgiveness is the gift from the offended person. Mm -hmm. Now, in faith, we learn that from Christ on the cross. Mm -hmm. Mm, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they exactly. do. Exactly. And his <clears throat> sacrifice, but also key, rising from the dead, was once and for all. But it was a gift from God, who's the offended person when we sin. Mm -hmm. Now, if a person has no faith, I can leave that part out and explain the same basic premise that people without faith, if you want to get to a point of forgiveness, 
it's going to be something you do rather than something they earn. Mm-hmm. And there are there have been examples. Uh, one of the examples that I use is a situation where a 16-year-old boy in Indianapolis was shot, and he wasn't even the intended target. He was shot and killed. Mm-hmm. And they interviewed, you know, the father. Another example that I use is you know victims of uh, drunk drivers, and for some reason, a lot of times it's the drunk driver is the only one who lives through the accident, and people will talk about. Uh, wanting to get past the anger and the feelings and the memories. And, you know, some will be wanting to forgive and some will be very clear, I will never forgive that person. Okay, but if you ever want to talk about forgiveness. And then if they ever do, then that's the approach that I take is trying to teach them and then let them struggle with the premise that the other person is probably not going to do what you want them to do for them to, quote, earn your forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So give that up. And sometimes that other person is no longer living or no longer available. And it just physically, humanly can't be done. Mm -hmm. But even when it can, it's probably not going to happen. But if you want to approach forgiveness, it's a completely different path than what most people think about in terms of, again, somebody apologizing and somebody taking responsibility for it. None of that's necessary to forgive. Mm. Forgiveness comes from, as a gift to the person who was offended, and that's how you get through. That's how you go through the path of dealing with that internalized anger, that upsetness, that frustration mm-hmm. with whatever the experience was. And that's whether it's a one-time experience or something that happened multiple times mm-hmm. over a period of time. That's a great insight. Yeah, it's really about grace, isn't it? I I think yes, it's it, right on the money. It's interesting that people similar have this expectation of like this formal – presentation to a judge where yes it's like i am sorry for what i did i right. did x i can see mm-hmm. how you would feel why please forgive me for doing x it just it hardly ever happens that way and even when it does i mean every now and then you'll see a situation of a court case on tv where the defendant the per- the offender did make a what some people might have seen a very honest right. appropriate plea of i messed up you know Oftentimes it's the drunk driver or, or somebody else who's done something else. I, I messed up. I'm responsible. I'm really sorry for the impact, for the long-term damage this has done to you and your family. And the person's interviewed outside in the courtroom saying, I'll never forgive that guy. What do you do then? Mm. And they don't have to. It's a choice. But on the flip side, and I'm sure issues of forgiveness come up all the time in therapy. Yes. Like it's just a part of the relational struggle we have. But on the other side of that is the person who has who needs to be forgiven. Like I did something mm-hmm. to this other person and mm-hmm. they won't forgive me. Right. Right. And so I'm kind of sitting in that place. What kind of advice would you have? Right? He, he you doesn't give advice. You don't give advice. Sorry. What, what are your thoughts on the person in that position? They want to be forgiven. They yeah. want See, to be I, forgiven. Yeah. I would take two approaches and the overly simple, simplified one for that person, particularly if it's an issue of faith. And again, it's an oversimplification and there's a process to get to it is, well, if God has forgiven you, then Mm. you can forgive yourself. Yes. Yes. I was just going to say that it's not a question of needing to be forgiven. It's receiving forgiveness, right? Right. And again, if, if you've been honest, if you've been earnest, because one of the things that atheists and evangelicals alike have a real problem with is I think there's some people who did some really bad things that are in heaven. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And some people 
who haven't done really bad things are going to get to heaven and go, how did you get here? Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. the approach I would take with a person of faith is we're going to go with, I understand that you want to be forgiven. You may not get it from that person, mm-hmm. but you focus on God. And if God can forgive you, which he yeah. can, mm-hmm. if you earnestly seek that, then you can forgive yourself. Because even one of Jesus' commands was love your neighbor as yourself, which what I find in therapy is a lot of people leave out the second part of that. It's like they love other people, but loving yourself is supposed to be some mm-hmm. kind of terrible thing. It's mm. it's narcissistic and it's evil. No, you need to love yourself. For the person who's not of particular faith, I would use the, the kind of pay it forward experience of what you're to do with that is if you want forgiveness from this person, but you can't get it specifically for them, is do what you can to make amends, make sure you don't do that again, help other people learn from your experience, you pay it forward. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Brian, thank you. Oh, thank you. Appreciate you having me. Great episode. Yes. Uh, Thank you, Brian, for joining us here in Studio E. I found, Eric, that... Uh, Brian had a, a really clear grasp of some of the history and current practice of mm-hmm. of uh, mental health care. He's about my age, so we've been around a while, and he he's been through the uh, transitions from uh, yes. medication being rare uh, as a form of uh, uh, therapy. And uh, now when the medical model has come to dominate, Mm -hmm. uh, he had some good reflections on what the pros and cons are of each uh, of those. Yeah. Yeah, he really reiterated a number of times that he doesn't really give advice. Right. He he isn't telling you he has the solution to your problems. Right, right. Which the medical model often is just diagnose and here's how we're going to cure it. Ideally, yeah, he's not uh, a good model for mental health necessarily, right? Exactly. He says, you know, that he we asked our typical question, "What does healing mean to you?" And he he said it was the not that the problem goes away, but that we discover a better way of using resources available. Mm -hmm. It's more of a strength-based approach. What do we have within ourselves and within our community? He talked about, you know, is there a church? Is there a a family is there, you know, what is already there mm-hmm. that can be enhanced to make a person feel better, do better. Right. You know, Tony, you, you weren't here when we did the episode with uh, reviewing people's responses to what does healing mean to you. Mm-hmm. I heard it, though. Oh, yeah. The thing that really stands out for me is that almost all of our guests put healing in the context of more very active, ongoing. It's a means thing, not, yeah. not like the yeah. end. Right. In a way, it's almost surprising that more people aren't just like, and healing means that you've figured it out. You know? Right, right. I think it's... Really, when you talk to someone in the most intimate way, they recognize healing is something that we're always up mm-hmm. to. You know, it would be interesting. We've, you know, Brian somewhat critiqued the medical model. We we ought to bring psychiatrist in who is a prescriber and mm. get them to represent the current thinking in terms of how we treat sure mental illness with medication primarily mm-hmm. and what their thoughts are, what their frustrations are. Yeah. So, what were your takeaways? 
So the part I liked about forgiveness was how he talked about forgiveness in a very Christian way, mm-hmm. you know, talking about Christ on the cross and, yeah. and how that can be a healing, a means of healing. And then he essentially talked about how you could take some of the same principles and not even bring Christ into it, but still have some of the same concepts to share how you can heal. Exactly. You know, and, and I think that's a really interesting thing to think of. You know, as Christians, we can speak the language when appropriate, but there's other ways of speaking with Christ-like, mm-hmm. you know, um, what am I trying to say, Tony? Well, I, what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, the good news is not restricted to theology. You know, the right. good news is faith and practice, mm. and I think leading a, a person with that, whatever their faith is yeah. to those stories, those concepts you, you talk of that produce healing uh, like forgiveness does mm-hmm. is essential and part of the therapeutic process. I would argue that's at the core. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I haven't really thought of this before, but a, a word like forgiveness, right? It can be so tied into religion yeah. that I wonder if some people who don't have faith almost don't even want to approach the subject. I mean, yeah. It's hard for me to even conceive being a person who doesn't want to think about forgiveness. Well, and I would agree, and yet there's a lot of people very resentful when the topic of forgiveness comes up because mm. they feel like they've been so deeply wounded mm. that no way in hell am I going to forgive. Okay. And uh, I think I've known a lot of people with mental illness who feel that way. You know, if yeah. there is a loving God and I've been created this way, mm. Yeah, I'm not going to forgive. Wow. Yeah. So next program, we're going to take January off uh, Mm -hmm. to regroup and discuss what lies ahead. But we do have a person in mind that we hope to interview. Rayleigh is his name. And Rayleigh is a fascinating man. He he was a veteran. He's a proud Mm -hmm. military veteran uh, of the Vietnam era. He developed or was born with and later became symptomatic of some uh, mental illness that he will discuss. Even had a period of his life where he's homeless. But he's come through all this. He's now an advocate and spokesperson for veterans and disability rights concerns. uh, We've been talking Rayleigh for a few months now. Yeah, I want Rayleigh. We've been uh, on the the Rayleigh for 2020 uh, uh, (laughs) wagon. (laughs) Rayleigh 2020. Uh, So Rayleigh, we're uh, if you're out there in Vegas or wherever you are, we're coming after you. Yes, sir. Tony, it's been a great year. It has. Yeah. Everybody have a very happy holiday season. Yes. Tony, our show has come to a close. Now is the time to ask for five-star reviews. Please scroll to the bottom of our podcast homepage, click on five stars, then click on write a review. Help us reach more people seeking emotional healing and the hope of faith. Thanks again for your support of Revealing Voices. Revealing Voices is not a substitute for professional mental health care or participation in a faith community. If your unanswered questions or unanswered prayers leave you feeling desperate or unsafe, we urge you to seek further help.
A partial list of outreach resources may be found on our website, revealingvoices.com. And then they have a restaurant in they the have town. Pac-Man arcade games. <laughs> more things like Cracker Barrel would sell. Oh, okay. <laughs> those, those kind of things. Kind of like Some country. really awesome rocking chairs. <laughs> exactly.